Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. I'm Gavin Costigan and all this month we're talking about facial recognition and other biometric technologies. With me to discuss that this week is Matthew Ryder QC from Matrix Chambers. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So what is it that's brought you as a lawyer to take an interest in this whole issue of biometric technologies? Uh, So I have a long practice in human rights law and human rights work and I think any lawyer who's interested in human rights work is now being drawn into work around data and biometrics. Uh, Ten years ago very few human rights organisations had tech people on their staff, had tech departments, now it's become pretty common and it's an indication that that's the direction that human rights work is going. Our lives are being lived digitally, our human rights are being affected digitally by machine learning, by data collection, and therefore it's just a natural progression of the way we go. Now, I know you've been asked to carry out uh, a review. Why are we at the point where we need a review in this area? Um, Well, I think the the original idea for the review came from a common select committee that was looking at automated facial recognition technology and felt there needed to be an independent review of that, the use of that technology because there was a lot of controversy, not just in the UK but around the world, about how automated facial, recogni- facial recognition technology is being used. And that led the Ada Lovelace Institute to commission me to do an independent review. And uh, really, after looking at it for a fairly short period of time, we realised that it would be better to broaden out the review, the remit of the review, into biometric technology generally, and trying to find a workable framework and set of regulations that would be proposed that properly understood this area, as opposed to trying to adapt existing regulation in the way we're doing now, which does cover this area, but really doesn't cover it necessarily with the nuance that's needed. Sure. Um, And you mentioned uh, concerns about this. What are the major concerns in this whole area? I think there are two, you could divide the concerns into two categories. The first category is the reliability of the technology. In other words, that the technology itself is being used when it's not really very reliable and it could have consequences in pe- on people's lives when the data or the, or the results coming back from the technology isn't reliable. And there's particularly con- particular concern about the reliability when it comes, for example, to people from black and minority ethnic communities who aren't necessarily properly included in the way the uh, technologies are developed. So when they're used, there's high levels of inaccuracy for those communities, as well as in some areas for women and other people. Mm. So there's a big concern about the reliability and whether we should be using these technologies on the public in experimental trials in ways that might impact people's lives in circumstances where it's not reliable. Presumably the reliability will increase over time as more and more data feeds into the system. But the concern then is that you're using it for real before it's of a sufficiently high quality. Yes. Uh, I think uh, the only thing I would say about that is that it's not just a question of more data into the system. Okay. It's also about the the sophistication of the products themselves. Some of them don't just require large amounts of data. Some of them are just better at learning and become better at learning on the data that they have. So you are getting technologies now that on the same data sets can learn much more efficiently than others. But you're right to the extent that the data sets need to be improved. And eventually, you're right, the technologies will be improved. So the second concern is whether 
we should even be going down this road in some areas and whether if we do go down this road because it's important to embrace technologies as they can assist us if we do go down this road what safeguards need to be in place to protect people when the products are very efficient so I'm very keen and I know others are very keen not just to examine the sort of technical reliability of these products and say should we use them now do we need to improve them because I think there's quite a lot of consensus in many areas that these products aren't reliable enough to use the broader concern is how do we regulate and set the parameters for their use once they are very reliable because in a a paradoxical way the more reliable they are the more complicated and difficult and in some respects the more dangerous the challenges are. And like so many technologies you can imagine uh, very good positive uses of this technology that will help uh, protect the public and uh, and allow access to certain things and all the rest of it and you can imagine negative misuse of this technology and so presumably regulation has to somehow fit into that space. That's absolutely right. I think one of the important points with that discussion and why I think there's been a call for an independent review is because the way you have that discussion is not necessarily intuitive and we've been having that discussion inefficiently in a, in a sort of slightly intuitive way for too long. So the intuitive way to have that discussion is to say, there's lots of good here, then there's lots of dangers. How do we balance the dangers against the good? Sure, that would be a traditional way of That's a traditional it, yeah. way of looking at it. And of course you will follow an argument that goes something along those lines, but you need to begin from a slightly different starting point, is to say, how important are the rights that are in play here? How important is your biometric data to you? Because it's not necessarily intuitive to people how important their biometric data is to them until a long way down the line something happens which makes them realise this data has consequences for me that I couldn't comprehend. And so you have to have a starting point from a position of knowledge of what the significance of that data is and an an understanding of legal rights to realise how something so personal affects your own rights and so after that you then decide well where are the areas we can compromise in order to benefit from the efficiencies of this technology and where are the areas where there really are hard lines and we've got to be much more cautious about any form of compromise also sorry just on this what are the areas we can consult the public on because the public is sufficiently informed to make a decision about that balance yeah and what are the areas where it's too difficult for somebody who's not an expert in this area to be able to make a decision, how do we get the public into a position where they could be properly informed? So it's quite a lot to unpack from what you've just said. Um, Help pull out a little bit some of the rights we're talking about and how they're affected by some of this technology. So you have traditional rights to privacy. So you can have aspects of your biometric data which if they're used and shared can reveal information about you that no one else would know. So your biometric data can reveal relationships that you have that you wouldn't even realise, that you're related to people you don't know about. It can cause people to uh, bring you into a circle of suspicion or circle of observation or surveillance in circumstances where you wouldn't ordinarily be simply because of your biometric connection to those who are within that same circle of surveillance. And similarly, there can be future uses put to the way your face is being used or the way your other biometric data is being used that um, are not only intrusive but uh, can be the foundation of future technology which would then make assessments about you, Mm. potentially make assessments about you 
based on immutable characteristics like your DNA or your inherited characteristics or try and make assumptions about you based on biometric data you know are there aspects about you that are consistent with group of people who seem to be more dangerous are there aspects about you that are more likely to suggest you might be susceptible to ill health and therefore make us cautious about providing you insurance in a way that we wouldn't if you didn't have those immutable characteristics now we still have to navigate how appropriate is it to allow people to be negotiating and surrendering their biometric data when they may not realize the implications mm -hmm. that that would have for them not only now but how that information is used in the future and more importantly as in all data areas i don't think ordinary people are often aware of the significance of when you surrender your data how often it's shared and how much it's shared yeah and so if, if you can imagine a scenario where people are uh giving up their biometric data, they may be signing away uh, the use of that data for things that they had no idea and would not have been happy uh, were a consequence of giving up that data. And you can see a similar uh, thing, but not quite so extreme, uh, when uh, people agree to terms and conditions on uh, websites and apps and various other things without having any idea really what their electronic data is, is going to be used for. How do we get into a conversation uh, and start to, to pull out uh, where we should go when it's difficult to engage the public in this because they're not very well informed? I think there are a couple of things. First of all, there is one way you do this exercise, which is what I'm doing, which is a legal review. Mm -hmm. It's effectively, with an understanding of rights and, and the legal framework, it's effectively looking at is the law fit for purpose? Are the regulations fit for purpose? What should the law and regulation be? Because we want the law and regulation to not only be appropriate to pr protect people's rights, but you also need a system in which companies, some of them very innovative, very good companies, want to have the confidence that they know the legal framework, that someone's thought through where the harm is and where the harm isn't, and they can, in a sense, be free to do what they want within the parameters of that legal hmm. framework as good companies developing exciting products. So all of that is important as well as protecting people's rights. I think there's another bit of work to be done about how do you get the public up to speed in a way that the public can, through our normal democratic process, give its view mm. about where balances should be struck. Now, the traditional way we do that tends to be assuming that our elected representatives know what the public uh, would want, or alternatively, a little bit of polling. And I think your question hints at the fact that and I would agree with that, that hinting that at the moment those two mechanisms aren't really an efficient way mm. to have an inform, informed debate about these sorts of rights. So one of the ways that, that has been done in other areas is to have a kind of deliberative process. Mm. And I think uh, there's also a, a, a program being, project being launched at the moment that sits alongside the review I'm doing, which is not a legal framework assessment, but it's a, it's a deliberative process where you bring in members of the public you and sometimes they're called citizens councils mm -hmm. or deliberative democracy and they've worked in other areas you bring them into a set of workshops in which in a ve very ordinary and, and accessible way you give them the information that they would need to be able to make an informed decision and when those processes work well and sometimes they've worked extremely well they allow ordinary people who normally don't have the resources or the access to the information to be able to properly understand an area and therefore make an informed decision this process allows them to do so they can get up to speed 
And then they are often able to give very clear ideas about where they think the line should be drawn, what government policy they'd be comfortable with, what government policy they wouldn't be. Now, you can't ask members of the public every question like that. Some, sure. some rights and some policies should be non-negotiable, you know, the right to life or the right against discrimination, etc. But nevertheless, um, there are situations where, um, even, in, in, even in discrimination contexts or other contexts, there are, there are areas where there can be some uh, public view about what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable. What mm. should I be able to give up? What, shouldn't I, what am I willing to give up sure. as part of my rights? And that deliberative process can flush that out. Sure. And, and we've certainly seen other countries probably use deliberative processes more than the UK, um, uh, although I don't think anyone's used it in this particular area yet. Mm. Um, so that, that would be interesting. One of the reasons it's so important, just, to, just mm. to say, is that I think sometimes we have a pretend deliberative process going on. And so I think one of the worst things in this area when it comes to data rights is we have a kind of pretend view that the public has expressed its, its viewpoint on a particular uh, relationship between, say, data aggregators and the individuals benefiting from a service and say, look, they've ticked the box, mm. most of the public are happy about that. A random poll here or there and someone says that we asked the public and they were totally fine with that. Or we get told that because of some enormous, very scary danger that we all want to prevent, terrorism threats, child abuse threats, domestic violence, etc., that those uh, dangers are properly dealt with by surrendering a lot of rights. And I think what's, what's really useful in this area is to have a new deliberative process where it's actually very consciously trying to take a group of people, members of the public, through the steps they would need rather than what's existed at the moment, which is a kind of um, gloss over public opinion yeah. by random studies and, yeah. and a kind of presumption that the public is happy with something yeah. when it might not be. And eventually this will come into what you started with, which is the area of law and regulation and what, if anything, would need to change. Um, can you just set out a little bit what the, the current law and regulations are in this area that sort of regulate use of these technologies? So at the moment we have a general data protection regulation, which is everybody will have heard of it. It's an overarching regulation, EU regulation, which is one of the most uh, comprehensive and progressive regulations in the world when it comes to data regulation. Uh, there are various US equivalents, um, and also we have domestic law, which largely incorporates uh, the data, general data protection regulation, but also um, tries to uh, respect certain carve-outs that the, the UK has sought from EU regulation. Um, but there isn't bespoke biometric uh, law at the highest level in the UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a growing awareness that the kind of regulations which do cover and, and do mention biometric uh, data and your personal data in that context and, and are respectful of that, they do give it special status, need to be more detailed because there is a risk that if you are simply setting out very general principles around the treatment of biometric data, you're not giving sufficient clarity and guidance to both government bodies who want to use your biometric data to keep you safe or to, to give you more efficient services and private companies mm. who want to use your biometric data in a way that they hope will give you great products. There's not necessarily enough detail and structure to give both the public and private bodies sufficient guidance. And so it's about developing new law and new regulation. The Information Commissioner's Officer is very on top of this issue. Mm. 
and you know in some areas of uh, that touch on biometric data like for example your face and your image um, there are uh, you know we have a, a CCTV uh, regulate um, uh, codes of conduct and, and various other regulations or codes of conduct within our overall structure but the reality is most people feel the time has now come to examine this specific area of biometrics in more detail, not least because it's one of the areas that is proceeding at such a pace yeah. and has such a risk of going right to the heart of your personal rights. And how do you develop good regulation for a technology that's developing so quickly? Um, I, I think... The way you normally try and do that in human rights areas is to give a very general uh, expression of a right and then use case law and use other decisions to try and interpret that. I think one of the things that we're... Uh, and it goes back to, to the previous thing I was talking about. One of the shortcomings of that is sometimes that initial declaration or statement of a right is, t is too general. Mm. And so I think what we're trying to do now is use regulation to maybe not just wait until cases come up on an ad hoc basis, hope judges can make the right decision, but give a little more guidance, flesh out in a little more detail what the regulation should be. Yeah. And in answer to your question more specifically, make sure you're iterating that on a regular basis because the useful thing about a dynamic uh, area like this is that decisions will come up Mm. products will arise or, or NGOs and human rights groups will identify issues and it provides an opportunity for regulatory authorities to reassess the rules and decide if they need changing or they need development or they need amendment and so I think in this particular area given the pace at which it changes you can't set out the review I'm doing or anything else can't set out a for all time position and I think it needs regular updating. I think the difference between having a <clears throat> Data Protection Act in 1998 and then waiting until 2018 to have an update was too long. Sure. And I think the idea is that we are keeping better on top of those technologies through a legal framework. Sure. Um, obviously, we're in the UK and we're wrestling with these things, but countries around the world are going to be wrestling with them as well. Um, have you got any examples of either uh, jurisdictions that are doing things that we could learn from that are good or, or indeed jurisdictions that are doing things we could learn from that are, are bad that we'd want to avoid? So I think in the area of biometrics, um, there isn't really any jurisdiction that we would point to to say they're doing something especially good on a kind of uh, holistic level. But there are several jurisdictions. There are several cities in the US. There are uh, places within Europe who have put a moratorium, for example, on the use of facial recognition, automated facial recognition technology, because they're concerned about its reliability. And even the Metropolitan Police and various other authorities here who, who um, tested some of that uh, technology have expressed some concerns about how they would proceed in further testing. So there is a, a sort of growing consensus of cautious practice as to how you would move forward in relation to developing and adopting these technologies. I think when it comes to negative um, uses of this technology, you know, many people would point to somewhere like China, where they're concerned that the rollout of biometric technology in almost every aspect of civilian life, not just in relation to law enforcement, but in every aspect of civilian life, 
uh, is something which most other uh, societies where they have you know, a, a different approach to human rights would find anathema, mm. an anathema to what, how they proceed with protecting people's rights and, and people's sense of privacy and ownership over their own personal data, particularly biometric data. I think it, it, it is it's slightly lazy and it is easy just to point to China and say that's the worst. There are other areas and other jurisdictions who are busy, you know, governments across the world who are busy buying Chinese products sure. around biometric data and are busy trying to roll them out. And because they are smaller economies or they're not doing it so comprehensively or because they're in the global south, they don't get the same level of publicity. But the effect for their citizens can be even more profound. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, what we have to appreciate is that for many developing economies, they see the use of technology as a way of leapfrogging a lot of other development challenges, which is great, but there is a danger that within that process, rights can get overlooked and biometric products, biometric technology products that can be sold across the world need to be carefully thought through in terms of how they might uh, impact on other societies, which is why it's not only an area of regulation in terms of rights, but may also need to be an area of regulation in relation to, say, for example, export control. Yeah. We, we often protect dangerous products, the export dangerous products yeah. in that way, and that might be something that biometric products need to be looked at with more detail. Yeah. So that was the negative side of potential consequences. Yeah. But just to, to finish off, let's look positively. In the UK, if we get this right, where might we be in five years' time? I think the goal is to make sure we have some really great products that make our lives better um, through the use of biometric data. That we have an efficient way of organising how we get through public services and other things in a way that makes good use of biometric data because there are aspects of biometric data because they're immutable and because they're, they're very difficult to duplicate or, or replicate in other ways. They can suddenly make uh, a lot of things much easier to use. We're all aware of how being able to open your phone by looking at it is an advantage to having to type in a password. But most importantly, the idea is that we are being able to use those products with confidence, confidence that they're not based on a model that is discriminatory, didn't take into account uh, how it would affect minorities or women or whatever. And similarly, that you can use those products with a level of confidence, that you're not having to hide uh, in fear that if I enter into this new world of more efficient services, I'm absolutely giving up some of the things that are most important to me in a way I'm, I don't really know what the consequences might be in the future. So I think the goal is that we have an environment, a really healthy environment for developing and using biometric products. I think there's a little bit of a political deficit in this area at the moment. So I think it's, it's quite hard to point to particularly British politicians who you would say have made this area, data use, tech companies, their regulation, mm. a key part of, their, of that politician's political identity. You know, reducing inequality, doing other things for many politicians is who they are. Sure. But this issue for many of us is so important it would be great to see politicians adopting it and taking real pride in being on top of this area. And so one of 
if you're saying where would we like to be, one sure. of the places I'd like to be is have politicians really excited about it and being really into making sure we stay on top of it. Well, let's see how that goes. Matthew Ryder, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. You can find us on soundcloud.com, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you found this podcast. Or you can check out further details about the Foundation at www.foundation.org.uk.